and welcome to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that must be Julie, and we're back to talk reading, although this week we're going to focus in very specifically, and we've got a couple of special guests to help us in that. Uh, the author of the new memoir, From Here, Luma Mukla, joins us, and Julie's sister, Christy, who is kind of our conduit with Luma, the way we uh, got to know Luma ahead of this book, which... Uh, is going to be doing big things and lots and lots of people are going to know lots and lots about Luma by the time they check this out and you will not want to miss it. From here is the beautiful memoir of home, the home we are born with and the home we choose. Luma grew up in Jordan where her sexuality was a crime and acknowledging and accepting who she is would cost her life. This is the story of her struggle as the member of a loving family whom she knew would not be able to accept her and the home that she loved that she knew she would have to leave. While in college, Luma applied for asylum in the United States and began to build a new life, learning how to embrace her new home and chosen family while never forgetting where she's from. Uh, Luma, welcome in. Christy, welcome in. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a new format here, but Christy, I will let you open us up uh, by no pressure, telling, telling us about Luma, how, how you know her, and, and then uh, how you two are connected. I know Luma uh, through her work with Fuji's family. So I work with um, their first public school partnership, which is Stronga Academy in Bowling Green, and have gotten to know Luma over the last year, have gotten to um, got to read her first book, which you all talked about on the podcast, uh, Learning America. And I, I love that book for showing her um, her vision with her work, the um, the way that Fuji's families got started, and then but also her vision for um, work with refugees and education in the U.S., and then I've really enjoyed this book from here, just getting to read more about a person who I'm, I'm glad to be able to call a friend. Um, so excited to, to hear more through this conversation. Well, Luma, I'm going to put you on the spot first in a way that uh, all of our few guests have to do. I mean, we are about reading here. So before I talk to you about writing this phenomenal book, talk to me about reading. It's very apparent from your book that you're a big reader yourself. Uh, what kind of stuff do you gravitate toward reading now? And I guess, what's the last book you read that you just couldn't put down? Um, yeah, you're right. I love reading. Um, I have a whole range of things, everything from nonfiction to murder mysteries to uh, romance novels. Um, so I, I Will Find You by Harlan Coben was the last. It just came out, just went through it like in a day. Uh, Chrissy recommended Daisy Jones and the Six. That was also awesome. I loved how like short and quick the chapters work so you're like oh i'll just read one more chapter it's like nope here's another one and then you're like up <laughs> to the middle of the night um and i just finished um make something wonderful by steve jobs which was really cool because it was like emails and speeches and um just a different way of presenting information i want to well, write that one down i love that one okay luma will you um tell us about your new book just give us a summary um, yeah, from here is a coming of age memoir of growing up uh, gay and Muslim in the Middle East. I was born and raised in Jordan. Um, and it's the book I wish I had growing up. I felt very alone and isolated. And so um, when this opportunity came by, um, I wanted a book that kids could have and kids could read. So. Makes sense. Well, one thing I want to ask you about, I feel like for all of us, wherever we are in the hills of eastern Kentucky or in Jordan, uh, 
I think we all kind of normalize our own childhood. Our experiences, we assume, are, are everybody's experiences. So, so your life growing up was very different than my life growing up in, in many ways. Uh, <laughs> you know, you came up in, in a family of, of great privilege and, and great uh, prosperity. But at some point, that tendency to normalize kind of slips aside and you realize maybe my experience, you know, isn't exactly like everybody else's. Uh, that was just one of the things in the book that fascinated me. I'm thinking in particular, there's a story you talk about going with your grandmother and playing soccer with a bunch of kids in a refugee camp. Tell me about kind of that dawning that maybe your life was a little bit different and then what that ultimately meant to you. Uh, you're, you're a very socially conscious person. Your, your privilege in many ways, I think seems to have fueled some pretty significant impulses in your life. Can you talk about that a little? Are you saying like you never like slaughtered sheep as a kid or played soccer in a refugee camp? Is that, I, I didn't even play soccer. So I different. mean, we, we didn't even have that in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. So no, no, a little different. Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, you know, my grandmother is very central in this book um, and she has really shaped me. Um, and she's very down to earth and just like beautiful soul. Um and I remember when she took me to that refugee camp, uh, you know, we're kind of in our bubble, like our parents protected us is like they, even though the disparity in Jordan is, is more extreme than the United States, like there's not really a middle class, it's poor or super rich. Um, and I kind of knew that, but had never seen it the way it was like in a camp. Um, and I still remember the scenes of like dirt and tents and a lot of filth, um, but then kids were just playing the game that I knew. Um, and I think, um, I can't remember who whose quote this is, but they said, you know, with, with privilege comes the burden of responsibility. Um, and, and I feel that every day. Like, you know, even though I had to leave my country, I was able to apply for asylum and get it. And hundreds of thousands of people can't do the same, even though, their story is just as strong or not stronger than mine. Um, but I speak English. I had access to an attorney. Um, I had a college president that wrote a letter for me. And so when you're that privileged, what type of responsibility do you have to give to others? Um, and to not forget that, like, I think it's so easy to get in our bubble. Um, but sometimes for me, the bubble feels claustrophobic. Like, I'm just like, this is not real. Um, the suburban bubble I just moved into sometimes is like, it's bizarre. <laughs> so, yeah. Listen, I'm supposed to ask the next question, but I really feel like it's connected to what Luma just said. <laughs> 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 the question is really about Luma, what um, your commitment to social justice through your experiences. But I feel like that's really what you're kind of just, just were saying. Yeah. And I also think like, you know, I, I had everything right. And then I was disowned and cut off. So I went from having a credit card that was unlimited to literally $200 in my bank account. Um, and I didn't have permission to, or I didn't have a work permit. Um, and so it was just kind of like, oh shit. And you really find out who your true friends are when you go from, you had everything and then nothing. Um, and those are the friends I still have now. Um, people's true colors really come out at that time. Um, and I think that really 
um, shifted my perspective because all of a sudden I was on the other side of it. And people treat you very differently when you're on the other side and they shouldn't. But I love the way that you used both ends of that perspective. I mean, ultimately, I felt like the narrative here kind of bookends this early recognition that you are different, that you have privilege to you complete your circle of who am I, what is my purpose when you use your knowledge and your experience and your compassion to pour into other people. Um, how organic is, is the move from this incredibly wild life you've led into this educational mission that you're pushing today? I mean, do, you, do you think a lot about how did I go from A to, a to Z through Q, C, and D, or, or is it just the way it happens? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is like I wrote the first book, and this is the prequel to it. Um, and a lot of people, when they read the first book or they learn about my work, it's like I'm turned into a saint or a superhero. Even though I was very intentional with the first book about making sure people understood that I'm not that. Um, and this book's for them to understand why I do this work. Like it's personal, um, you know, creating environments where kids belong and feel welcome and you know, in, in a country that I believe very strongly in is super important, but my my life story shaped that. And I think if I hadn't experienced any of that, I, I wouldn't be doing what I did. And for a long time, I resisted it. I was like, nope, I'm going to show my parents I can make it here, you know, become an attorney or, you know, whatever nonsense everybody else expected. And just everything kept pulling back to, to this kind of work. I want to ask you about the craft of this book, because that was one of my favorite things about it. The story that you tell is just a really vulnerable story. Um, and I imagine it took a lot of courage to be able to tell it. The stories that you tell all the way through it, the specific incidents from your childhood and then from being here in America, they all fit together so perfectly. So can you tell us what it was like to write a memoir and how you chose which stories to include? Yeah, I think the first was like when, you know, we, put out the proposal and the publishers that came back, one wanted a memoir about the work that I did. And then the other one wanted a young adult memoir, young adult. Like I didn't want to write a young adult book. And she's like, well, you work with kids and you have kids. This should be easy for you, you know? Um, and I, like, I, I read a lot of memoirs and so many of them, like there's always a villain, right? Um, and in life, I don't think there's a lot of villains. I think everybody has flaws and everybody makes mistakes. Um, there were moments where I, I didn't want to write anything. I was like, nope, can't tell the story, can't tell the story. You know, you come from a culture that is, um, you don't talk about anything. Um, and so to have it laid out there um, and picking which stories that I loved, that like the good memories of home, because um, everybody wants the bad ones, right? It must be so bad that you left, um, mm -hmm. but it wasn't that bad. Um, and it's hard to leave. Um, and I thought about like, you know, the age, you know, I'm eight, like what stories do I want, you know, my daughters to hear, right? And as you get older, you're like, okay, at this age, what do I want them to hear? What do I want my students to hear? You know, like my students share a lot about struggling with their identity and home and their parents and um, have, you know, contemplated suicide. And it's like, these are issues teenagers are struggling with. Um, I was really nervous about putting that in and then putting um, 
the relationship with a much older woman in um, because my students are going to read that. Um, my kids are at some point going to read that. And yeah, I don't know how that's going to play out. So I may be calling you guys for advice when that one comes out. <laughs> so, I mean, was there any, any real debate from you? Did you really think maybe I should just not tell this story or these couples stories or, or was it just, you know, if I'm going to go 80% in, I might as well go hundred percent in. Is that kind of the mentality? I mean, Christy said I laid it all out there and I was like, hmm, no, no, there's some stories that I haven't laid out there. <laughs> some are still like, no, those are like sacred. And, um, and it's like, what, what do, like, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I want them to understand like, this is a journey. Yes. Mine is maybe a little unique, but people struggle with all these issues, right? Maybe not all of them together, but different parts of it. Um, and I wanted to bring people in so they could relate to different parts. So, even if you're not gay or Arab or Muslim, like there are parts of these stories that people can relate to. Um, and I'm one that is usually a closed book. Um, you know, I, I don't like to share a lot. I don't want people to know a lot, but um, I think it was the timing of the pandemic. You know, I had like lots of time not traveling and thinking and it was very therapeutic. Um, and my kids were becoming of an age where they're asking a lot of questions about my past. Um, and I remember like when my wife read it, she's like, I didn't know this. Like she didn't know a lot of stuff I put in there. Uh, it's easier for me to communicate on paper than in person. Yeah, I get that. I'm very much that way also. Um, and I worry too sometimes about the stories that my kids ask me about. Um, how much do I really want to tell them and when? But I think that honesty that you have in this book, um, and again, the vulnerability anybody re would relate to and would honor and really be grateful for. So thinking about the different people that would read it and maybe how that impacted the stories that you were telling or how you were telling them, who, who do you feel like is your ideal reader? I mean, I like to go broad. Like I want a lot of people to read it. You know, I want kids <laughs> to read it. I want parents to read it with their kids. Um, I want people like Masera to read it, you know, to know like what kind of impact people can have when, you know, they take you in. Um, I, I think there's so much rhetoric about books like mine um, and they don't want them in the hands of anyone. And it's like, I, I don't understand why, you know, like why would a book like this not, not be accessible to kids and families and educators um, because it's an important story. And I also think it, like if ever, like I think all Americans need to read this because I think people take for granted what this country has to offer. Um, so my ideal reader is everyone. We really, really loved reading about your family in here. I feel like every family, there are complications that aren't seen on the surface. And the way that you drew those out and the love among your family members and also the complication was really, really um, good and easy to relate to. So can you talk to us about the importance of family throughout the book? You began and you ended with family on, on both ends of this. And obviously that's that's um, super important to you. Like um, in, in Arab culture, like you're an extension of your family. So like my dad calls me Baba. Baba means dad in Arabic. My uncle calls me Khalo, which means uncle. So you're called by the relationship you have with the person. Um, 
like you don't factor yourself as an individual. You are the daughter of the son of even our middle name. Like my siblings and I all have Hassan as our middle name because that's my dad's name. Um, every weekend, like Thursdays at my grandmother's house, Fridays at the farm. Um, like we had friends, but your cousins were your best friends, not anyone else. Right. Um, and it was hard to lose all that. Um, Your your grandmother was such a, a force here, and and one of the parts I loved, uh, you, you talked about her praying at one point, and the fact that you watched her, that she didn't hector you or, or proselytize you, she mm -hmm. just demonstrated it, and that was what you needed for that to sink in. Um, yeah, she she's such a, a larger than than life character in this book i just loved her so much that she's she's the one who you kind of broke the ice with with your family mm -hmm. after you were you know exiled in america um uh, but but she's she's a spiritual force for you mm -hmm. um and and the the part where uh you you say to her that you're worried that, that allah made a mistake with you and she said, I'll, I'll make a mistake you know just such such a beautiful lady that i think readers will really enjoy that um you know do, do you hope that uh, that your your grandmother kind of stands out as a, as a figurehead for all the older people who are trying to make sense of, of a generation that maybe they don't always understand but they always love yeah i mean i think for older people and even younger people like for her to be like what, what does it mean to love unconditionally even when you don't understand like I mean, she'd, she'd call me like when I was in the United States, starts reading passages of the Quran about like, hey, this might be a sin. I was like, well, it's not exactly a sin, right? <laughs> um, and so, but we always had that conversation. It was never in anger or in like, you're going to hell. Um, and I think in Islam, that's rare because it's usually so black and white. And for her, it was always about compassion. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't know, like our grandparents just gentler than parents like would she have done that if it was her kid um i, I don't know um but yeah if if she can like someone who grew up in a conservative muslim culture can accept their grandchild you know for who they are then everybody else should she didn't have access to information or um like anything like it was just the right thing to do yeah yeah so i wanted to ask you um as kind of the, the sports guy, the, the societal winds of change that come through, uh, it touched me profoundly. You know, you're, you're in a culture where not only does being gay mean you're ostracized, it, it means you're in danger. Uh, and in fact, I, I thought it was, you know, so descriptive that there's not even a word for gay. You, you don't have a word. And then you read a Time magazine article on Martina Navratilova, uh, just the, the societal implications of being a famous athlete. I think she's carried that mantle about as well as anybody. And obviously she's somebody who means a lot to you. Talk about that, mm -hmm. that Time Magazine article and what Martina Navratilova meant to you. Yeah. Um, I realized when I was reading my audiobook, I'd mispronounced her last name my entire life. I, I, I probably am still. <laughs> no, you actually pronounced it right. I, I yeah. Um, but like 
a lot of the magazines and books that came into Jordan were censored. They were controlled, um, except the ones that went through the United States Embassy. Um, and so um, our school had a library. All the magazines came there. I realized very quickly that Time magazine that was in my school library is very different than the one I read at home. Um, and I'm, I'm an athlete. I love sports. I love tennis, soccer, basketball, like any any team except golf. I don't really like golf. Um, <laughs> and so like when I saw the art, I was like, what are they writing about her? Um, and I'm a Steffi Graf fan. So I was like, ah, why her? Like, why not Steffi? Um, and it was a time where I was really struggling with who I was. Um, and just reading, there's like a sentence in there that says she lived her life as an open homosexual. I just like hit me. Um, but there's someone else like me. Like I thought I was the only one. Um, yeah. And then like, um, like even in the nineties, like there's a lot of debate about being out, right? Um, and you should keep things private. It's like, but if you're dating someone, you're married to someone, you have family with someone, what's private about that? No one else keeps it private. Um, and the importance of other kids. Like, I don't think she, will ever know that like, and there's probably thousands of us whose lives she saved by being out. I mean, I, I did a book about Jackie Robinson and, and it dawned on me the similarities here. And, and, you know, my focus with Robinson, I went into Robinson's story thinking, you know, what if you're not a game changer? What if you are, as I am a white straight, Christian male, what, what role do you play in societal change? And so for my book, I looked at how Robinson changed the people around him, not, not how, you know, they changed him or he, you know, just how many walls could he knock down? And, and the stories like yours are fascinating, but it also takes us into sport as a connection point anyway, which I'm, I'm a massive believer in. I think you're a true believer in that church as well. Christy and is now a believer in it, right? Christy, you've like come around for that, right? <laughs> yes, I'm doing my best. <laughs> well, Christy and I are both sport converts. <laughs> it's It's been hard work to, to, to convert, but uh, now, I thought it was funny. You know, I, I grew up in, in a, a pretty impoverished world in Eastern Kentucky, and I've seen a lot of people use sports as a way to negate their lower class status because on the court field diamond, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's rich or poor or gay or straight or black or white, or sometimes tall or short. Uh, you know, it, it's about the game and can you play the game? And if you play the game, that's a universal language. It's just fascinating to me how that's been true for you from the refugee camp as, as a little kid to as a professional educator who's changing the world with this. I mean, talk, talk a little bit, if I haven't already, you know, gone on too long about it, about sport and, and that way that it bridges gaps. I mean, I think it brings people together, right? If you play on a team with someone that's a built-in group of friends, um, they've got your back no matter what. Um, you get to know each other you get to learn to work together. Um, regardless of any difference or similarities you may have. And, and you need to be different. You can't all be the same. You can't have all the same skills and talents. Um, you know, sometimes I'll joke people like, you, you know, your, our, my varsity soccer team just like was incredible. 
I was like, well, I had the best of the world, right? I had Eastern Europeans playing defense. I had, you know, my Liberians playing striker. I was like, I, I could like assemble the best of the world. Um, it's like, how do you bring people from warring factions together? You know, like, and in the Middle East, you know, women's sports was not prioritized or um, it wasn't until like 10, or 10 years after I left till they started having women's national teams. Um, but I was lucky I got to play on co-ed teams and then at my high school. And I just love, you know, at, at the end of the day, just going outside and playing and hanging out with friends and not having to talk about anything other than the game. Um, and I think it's super pow- powerful. Well, one other thing that I, I wanted to ask about as, as respectfully to America as I can, given the fact that you were you know a, a seeker of, of asylum to dodge a uh, culture in which your lifestyle would be looked down on to see the American culture kind of move backward a little bit. Uh, I always think of it in terms of Bruce Springsteen says that his job is to define the gap between you know the, the American reality and the American promise. And I feel like that gap unfortunately has widened a little bit. I mean, not, not to make light of it, but are there ever days where you think, man, Australia might not have been bad. Maybe Canada would have been okay. Or, or are you just a hardcore American at this point who's in it to win it here as much as anywhere? So Australia is actually pretty bad for everyone. So I, I don't want to go there. I didn't know that. <laughs> like like they, have, they have people like, in, no, they're, they're terrible. You know, I remember when I was applying for asylum, my attorney was, said, you know, it'd be easier to get it in Canada. Um, but I'd fallen in love with America as a kid. And that's where I wanted to be. And I didn't care if it was going to take two, three, four tries. Like, this is where I wanted to be. Um, you know, because, you know, E.T. like is the original refugee story. And that was Americans taking in an alien, right? The adults in the government are assholes, but kids are good, right? Um and I still think it has the potential, right? And it's people that keep pushing in their communities to make things better and you know, using their privilege to highlight um, and using their stories. Everyone can make that story of when a member of their family came here for the promise. Um, and I don't really, I honestly don't believe there's any other country that I could be doing what I'm doing here. Um, and you know, when we're expanding, we're going to red states. We're not going to the liberal coasts like we believe the work needs to be done in the middle and in the south and you know people are good and you know my first impression of the south was a, was a southern baptist woman taking me in you know like how can you not love that um yeah i think we just need to put the politicians in their own corner and just <laughs> let us do the work and everything would be so much simpler well it, and, we have you know, been Go ahead. Okay. We have been following your work, of course, through Christy and all these good things that we're, that you are doing and all of you are doing together. And it is so worthwhile. And we are so glad that you have chosen to start here. At some point, you need to come see Christy in action because she is phenomenal. I know she's amazing. I've been, been to the school, but uh, Mm -hmm. we're never, the school holidays don't always line up so that we can get there. Although my daughter, go watch (laughs) Natalie has talked about coming and volunteering on like fall break, spring break while they're in and seeing, you know, getting her beta hours and working with her aunt Christy. So they helped with the library over fall break. (laughs) We did that. Yeah. (laughs) Great. 
Go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think you've put your finger on it in, in that the way that the, the world is changed is by people having the courage to share their stories and then these stories gaining an audience. And, you know, it's kind of a softball. We've kind of talked about it already, but, but, you know, we're in an era where any story that's outside the most narrowly tailored, careful, straight down the middle story is somehow dangerous. That's so untrue to the American experience. I mean, what, what does it mean to you to have young people in particular have the ability to reach out and put their hands on this and read through it and say, this is another story that even if all aspects aren't like mine, there are aspects of this that really resonate with me. It's a slippery slope when we start saying you can't read these books, you know, because that's the environment I grew up in where you couldn't read certain books where you didn't have access to information. Even now, certain websites are blocked. Um, and then, like, what kind of country is it if you don't have, you know, access to information, freedom of information? Um, and if you ban something, the kids are just going to find it anyway, right? Like, you're, they're not going to. Um, but it's... Um, like I'm seeing like these um, bills pass, you know, more specifically in Florida and you know, Texas and Tennessee, um, where it's like, do you guys understand where this is going to lead? You know, having grown up in an environment where that was the norm um, and it can happen so quickly. You know, we saw it happen in Turkey. You know, Turkey is the second largest democracy in the world and it toppled very quickly in the span of three years. And it was these slow things that started happening, censorship being one of them, and then oppressing cer certain groups, you know, and then slowly other groups. Um, I just don't understand, like, with all the problems we have in this country, this is what people are focusing on. And this is something that will help people and bring people together. And it's like you said, if we share our stories, you know, we're going to learn more about each other. Like, I never thought I'd be friends with someone from Eastern Kentucky. Like, I just didn't. Like, that was not in the plan. And, um, you know, there's a lot of differences, but we also have a lot in common. Um, well, Luma, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I love the book and can't wait for, for everybody to read it. Um, so who would play you in the movie version? It's going to be a scripted series, not a movie version. Um, <laughs> It's going to be uh, Pamela Anderson is going to play me because I don't want anyone to recognize me. Um, like joking aside, like I hope um, I hope they pick an Arab American actress or someone with you know some roots or that can pronounce the words properly. Um, but yeah, if not, there's always Pamela. <laughs> How was the audio book uh, experience? You 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 read this yourself? I haven't heard it. Mm -hmm. I, I've read the physical book, but uh, yeah. I always like when when writers read their own books. So I'm sure you're no exception there. But how hard was that? How weird was that? What's the experience like? It was really intense. It was like three days of recording. I had done, you know, learning America before. So I knew like no caffeine for like two weeks in advance and like a clean diet and lots of mint tea and licorice tea and um, lots of liquids. Um, my first book, this second day I came to record, I didn't have a voice like it was gone. Um, so they sent me home in complete silence. They're like, you can't talk. I'm like, but I have three kids. Like, you can't talk. My kids love that. But I couldn't talk for, for a full <laughs> evening. Um, but with this book, it was um, emotionally a lot more intense. Um, 
And like every night I'd come home, I just wipe out. Like I was just so exhausted, but by the end it felt like this huge weight had come off because, um, you know, I'd read it, you know, to myself, but reading it out loud was very different. And there are certain parts of it that just like my voice cracks or I, you know, it was very emotional. And at one point, like I finished a chapter and like the producer with the audio guy, like three people were crying and I'm like, Oh shit, this is going to be good. So um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, to read. It's easier to read other people's work. Well, I'd certainly enjoyed reading your work and uh you know, I, I think we'll see. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's more straight to Netflix than than it is straight to the big screen. I, I can see a nice, you know, eight episode series to, to convey the different parts of it. But but whatever it is, we are on board for the ride from here. Luma Mouflet, just superb work. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your honesty, and thank you for your example for a world that needs people who are willing to speak out. Thank you. And thank you for letting us read it (laughs) and for being on this podcast with us today. If you all have not yet read from here, uh, you need to pick up a copy ASAP and then let us know what you thought. You can find us on email at paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com, on Instagram at paperbackreaderspod or on Twitter sometimes at paperbackreaderspod. Our next book is going to be Stars of Alabama by Sean Dietrich. This is the rare novel that Joe chose and recommended to me. So he is very excited about that one that I'm going to read a novel that he chose. Um, So we'll see you back in two weeks to talk about that one. Whether you're reading about Jordan or Alabama or both, whatever you're doing, keep reading. Thanks, everybody.